All right, we're starting a new series on uh, the, the first letter from Paul to the Thessalonians. Now, actually, Paul, it's pretty obvious in the writing that it wasn't just Paul that wrote it. He might have penned it, but he's actually speaking on behalf of Paul himself, Silas, and Timothy, two of his disciples, people that he's training up to send out himself. Now, there's some peculiarities about this book, and so because we're going to be in it for the next several weeks, uh, we'll be in chapter two next week. We'll be in chapter three the following. We'll go till we finish it. Uh, This is kind of an intro sermon, and so you're going to get a little bit more background than you normally do. This will help it so the other preachers don't have to, when they're up here, they don't need to tell you everything all over again. But it is almost impossible to really understand what's going on with Paul in chapter one. It's just 10 verses. Uh, Unless you know what Paul's heart is and what the, the background to his ministry and Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica uh, is, is a port city. It's very important. There's a particular major Roman road that passes right through it. If you were a, a, a sailor or if you were a merchant marine, you had been to Thessalonica. Uh, if you were traveling on one of the Roman roads trying to get from one place to another, uh, this is where you were going to end up. It had a population of about 200,000. And like Corinth, and you probably heard us describe Corinth uh, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, that it's a lot like San Francisco. If Corinth is a lot like San Francisco, lots of different religions, uh, lots of different worldviews, lots of different accepted behaviors, uh, everything was was normal, um, then, then Thessalonica is more like Los Angeles. A little bit bigger, Um, a little bit more, even more cosmopolitan than San Francisco. Uh, Cosmopolitan just means of all the world, representative of all the world. Uh, But there's some particularities about Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica, we're pretty sure this this letter was written in about 51 AD. So if if our calendars are correct, and we know they're off a little bit, but probably by two or three years, Jesus died in, let's say, 33, 30, 33 AD. 51 is where we are. So Paul, this is not long after Paul's conversion, after he spent his uh, 10 to 13 years in being trained up to go do what he's going to do. Uh, we know that he, he planted the church in Thessalonica right after Philippi. We were just in the book of Philippians the last few weeks. Um, but it, it's about 200,000 people. But here's the peculiar thing about Thessalonica. It was so well known and so well loved and so much trusted by the emperor that they, in about 48 AD, so just for the last three years before this letter was written, they were allowed to self-rule. Now, that doesn't mean they were no longer subject to Rome. It just means that, that Rome didn't take a, a Plutarch. He didn't take someone, one of, one of the emperor or one of the, you know, the people who had kind of earned their right. Maybe they were great heroes in battle or something like that. And, and they pick someone up like they did in Jerusalem, and they stick them there to make sure that they, they collect all the taxes, they do all the right stuff, and they, they represent Rome well. The emperor and the Roman government in Rome had, had decided that they trust the, the, the people in Thessalonica so much that they allow them to self-rule. So when you read in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and you hear about city officials, there's a long uh, kind of Latin name for what they actually were, but that's, that's the self-rule. And so it's not just like their city council. They, they have much power, much authority, great strength, and they can make your life miserable. They could, I don't know that they could take away your Roman citizenship, but they could do anything short of that. So big deal in Thessalonica that they were self-ruling people. Now, in there, we know that there was this, just a a great plethora of, a veritable plethora, if you will, uh, (laughs) 
I just wanted to use that verbiage, um, of, of religions. And there are, you know, the, the, the typical Roman gods that we know about and that we learn in school, the, you know, the Roman and the Greek mythology, and a lot of the Greeks and the Romans had different names for the same god. Okay, there's all of those. And each household kind of had their, their particular uh, household god. And then there were what we call the mystery religions or the, or the, or the pagan religions. There were other gods involved, um, lots of little deities, Christians would look at them and say that it was demon worship, but there were, because it was a large city and it was very cosmopolitan, there were lots of different religions ex, uh, experienced, expressed, and were tolerated. Now, not celebrated, but tolerated. But here's a peculiarity about Thessalonica. Because of that, um, that self-rule that the emperor had given them the authority to rule themselves because he trusted enough in their Romanness that they would hold tight and true, there developed this emperor's cult, and uh, they began to proclaim the emperor as divine. In fact, some went so far as to say that the emperor of Rome is the one true God. In fact, they went so far as to mint their own coins, not Roman coins that, that have Caesar or whoever the emperor is at the time. You know, they just depends on who it was, but, but they, they minted their coins with the emperor's image on it, but they claimed him to be divine. So different than actual Roman currency, and they were allowed to do this. And that particular emperor's cult became very powerful in a very short period of time. So most people were syncretists. It's a big theological word that says, that means that a lot of people had their religion and their gods, but you found out pretty quickly that it wasn't very wise to not consider the emperor's cult as the primary religion of the area. So people began, they still worshiped, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if it's Greek or Roman, I don't remember which one, but Zeus and Apollo and Mars and all those. Um, but then they, then they started lifting up the emperor as the primary god of the area. So a lot of people would take their own little household gods and pick a little bit of this, pick a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and squeeze them all together. So you can imagine when Paul and Timothy come in and they preach the gospel about the one true God, that, that, that the, those city officials and those very powerful people saw that more as seditious, like they were trying to take over the government. And not just this new religious cult, but they were threatened by it. Because people were leaving the emperor's cult. People were leaving these other uh, pagan and mysterious cults. And people were even leaving Judaism for this new Christian thing called the way. So that's, a little, that's the background. Now here's what brought Paul and Silas and Timothy there. They left Philippi, and we know how much they love Philippi. We just talked about that. Pastor Greg got to preach the, the, probably the, the, favorite, the favorite chapter in all of Scripture for preachers to preach, Philippians chapter 4. You know, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, who, we were kind of fighting over that as pastors. Who got to preach that? And Greg won because he's Greg. He can take any of us down. He can break us like a chicken bone. So, no, that's not how it went. But after they planted in Philippi, things went really well and it took off really quickly. But the people that started resisting the spread of Christianity, they decided we need to get rid of Paul and Silas and Timothy. So they kicked them out. And the place that they ran is to the closest city 
that could, that could sustain a full-blown Jewish synagogue. Not a temple, but a synagogue. And that place was Thessalonica because it was so big and because there was so much permissiveness about religion. They went there and they began to preach the gospel to the, um, to the synagogue. And they were only there about three and a half weeks. And we know that there were some Jews that converted, but most of them came from these pagan cults. Many of them, most of them were very influential women, which really brought threats to the households of the men who were uh, part of this emperor's cult. So there's a lot of conflict from the very beginning. Now, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were only in Thessalonica for about three and a half weeks. But in three and a half weeks, they had, enough people had converted to Christianity that someone brought one of these new converts, two of them actually, and, and his name, you'll see it if you read through First Thessalonians, brought them up on charges. They, were, they wanted to find Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and I don't know why they couldn't, uh, or if God put a hedge of angels around them so that they were just, they were blinded so they couldn't capture and then try uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas, but um, they couldn't find them, so what they did is they grabbed these other two recent converts and they put them on trial for sedition, that they were worshiping gods and doing things that the Roman law does not allow. And they, they, they put them up on trial, and they, before they convicted them, though, they released them on bond. Very, very unusual. And the plan was, if they're released on bond, anything else that happens from this new Christian gathering, this new Christian movement, we get to blame on them. Now, while he was being arrested, while he was out on bond, and as they were being released, Paul and Silas and Timothy had to flee. Now, we're almost done with the background. They fled, we don't know exactly where they went, although we have a pretty good idea, but then people, this is the reports that Paul was getting back, people started um, coming after this new Christian religion and the people that were there. Persecution, they were being ostracized from their families and from their professions, and they started down-talking Paul and Timothy and Silas. So if you think about it, religious hacks were a dime a dozen then, as they are now. And if these people come in and they preach this new thing, there's a bunch of new converts, and then it gets tough, so they run. You can say anything you want about the people that were there and planted this thing and then took off. You can say they're not trustworthy. They're leaving you for all of, you know, to, to suffer all this. They, you know, we've heard terrible things about them elsewhere. So Paul's hearing that his own authority is being challenged, and he's concerned about the persecution that these brand new believers— some of them are less than three weeks old in Christ. He's worried about what's going to happen to them. So when you hear in First, in, in first Thessalonians, you hear Paul, it's, it's the only one of his books where he, he, does a, he does two areas of Thanksgiving. There's Thanksgiving, here's why I'm thankful. Thanksgiving again, here's why I'm thankful. He's so shocked. So he tried several times to send someone to get there himself, but then he finally sent one of the three, sent him off to Thessalonica to get a report. Are, they, are there a few that remain has everyone turned away? Have they all been killed? Have they all been slaughtered? And he hears back. The report comes back, and, and the report is good. And that's Paul. I mean, immediately he pens this letter and sends it out. So it's less organized than some of his letters. He, he doubles up on some things. And then there's some instruction that takes place because when, they, when Timothy came back with, with, a, with, with, a, with a report, they had some questions because they were three and a half weeks old in Christ with, with preachers. You know, they might be several months along now. So here's how it reads. But that's the background that Paul is anxious and, then he, and, and he's worried and then he finds out they're okay and they have some questions. And so he just oozes celebration. This is just how they start letters. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, normally he says to the church in Corinth, the church in uh, Philippi. But here it's the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always thank our God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance, he gets right to that, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that, you, that he has chosen you because, now I want you to watch this for a second, because sometimes we get frustrated when we're, when we're in a spot, we're, we're in a time when it feels like our faith is dried up a little bit. And we feel like we talk to God and we're just really talking to the ceiling. Or when it seems like there's times when you're like, I should pray, but I don't, re I don't really want to pray. I should read the scripture, but I just, it just feels dry. And we wonder, am I really saved? Paul says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Not that you've chosen him first, but it's always that God, it's not that we first love God, it's that he first loves us. We don't initiate faith, God does. No one is good, not even one. No one seeks God, not even one. But if you are seeking God, it means that God has first sought you and he's drawing himself, him, you to himself and himself to you. So he's trying to let them know that whatever doubts you have, whatever frustration, whatever oppression you're facing, we know that you are chosen by God because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, these other people, these other area, people in the region, for, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, I'll get back to that coming wrath here in just a second. Um, if you, and I don't know if you are right now, but when you find yourself in a situation where your faith feels shriveled up, where you really need the Lord to say, dry bones, rise up. Look back in your life and see the times that God spoke and you responded. See the times when you prayed and God responded. See the times when you had no expectation of being used by God, but God chose to use you anyway. Remember how God showed up when things were difficult. Remember how God showed up and you wanted to praise God when things were good. I have a whole file. I had a friend of mine that told me this, and I'll say it to Andrew. I've said it to him before. I'll say it to him again. Uh, when someone feels like they're called to the ministry, um, my, my advice to them is if you can do anything else and live with yourself, do it. Do it. But if you can't do anything else and live with yourself, maybe you're called. And then the people decide if you're called. And then God decides if he's going to put his mantle on you. But a friend of mine told me, if you know you're called to the ministry, you write down why. 
You put it in writing. You, 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 you start journaling and you say, here's, here's how, I, when I felt the call, here's when it was confirmed. Here's how I know that God is, is being fruitful and he's allowing a ministry that he's called me to to be fruitful. Write it down because there will be some time in your life. There will be some time when you doubt it all, when it seems fruitless, when you have no joy in it. There's gonna be a time somewhere, sometime in your life, probably more than once, where you go, I just wanna walk away. And you go back and you remember what God did. You remember how he confirmed it. You remember how you felt and what you thought and how you knew who God was and what he was calling you to. That is what Paul is telling them. He is saying, I have heard that you've stuck it out no matter what happened. And he tells them that, that even though things have been difficult, we know that God is in you because of this, because of this, because of this. You received, you reflected, you changed, you've grown. They've grown not only the number of the church when facing unbelievable persecution, but they've also, reports are that they're serving others, that they're growing in love, in mercy. They're growing in serving people that are the detestable ones in their culture. They're actually training up people and sending them outside of Thessalonica to proclaim the word of God and to be, show mercy to the poor. How do you know? When it feels like it's all dried up, history. Now, we're not supposed to drive by the rearview mirror. You're gonna, if you go from here to Grand Rapids driving by the rearview mirror, you might make it there, but someone's going to be, there's going to be, your car's not going to look very good. You might kill somebody. But it is always wise to check what's coming from behind and to check where, from where you've been. Paul is telling them that even, it hasn't been that long, but they proclaim the message of hope to them. And then Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave, and then life turned on these people. And they stood firm. And Paul reminds them at the end, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, some, some theologians argue that he's talking about um, that, that there's this expectation that when Jesus returns, Everyone, everyone's just going to get judged. It's going to get ugly. Maybe, maybe that's how it works. But, but keep in mind that this is first century. This is 51 AD. The, the, these people, Jesus died at 30, 33 uh, AD. And, and so most of these people, Paul, uh, Peter thought it. John thought it. Paul thought it. That Jesus says, I'm coming back. And so they were expecting that Jesus is going to come back before they die. I mean, remember the, the picture of, of Peter when, when, when Peter jumps in the lake Jesus shows up on the shore late in the Gospel of John, and he puts his clothes on and then jumps in the water. I assure you that that's not how it is when I'm fishing. I'm not naked first, and then when I want to get in the water, I put my clothes on. But I found that humorous. I know I've said it before, though. So he jumps out of the boat, and he goes for a walk with Jesus, and Jesus and him are walking down the, the, the beach, and, and, and he, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I do. Peter, really, seriously, do you, you love me more than ever? But you know I do. And then Jesus warns him, how he's going to die. And Peter, with the attention of God on himself, he goes, well, what about John? What about him? Because John was following along the beach because John's the one that Jesus loved most, according to John. And Jesus says this to Peter, hey, if I choose to let him re remain until I return, what's that to you? But there was this idea that Jesus is coming back before I die. And every generation since then has believed it. All the signs seem to point to Jesus coming back soon. And we've thought that every year for 2,000 plus years. And I don't know, it might be this year. 
It might be. I don't know. Here's what I love about it. Jesus didn't even know. I do not know the hour of my return. Only my father knows. But you'll see signs. And I think that there's some wisdom in God in, 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 in that delay. Because all of us think, I need to be ready. All of us are supposed to think that now is the most important time. All of us should be worried about those that don't know Jesus. If we want to know what the wrath of God is, be the person that when, 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 who dies and meets the Lord face to face. If you want to know what wrath is, be the person that says, I defy everything you've done. I do not receive the mercy and the grace and the unmerited favor. I will not accept substitutionary atonement. You think Jesus is going to force someone into heaven that doesn't want to be there? But if you imagine, if you, if the coming wrath is people who will not bend their knee and their will to the Lord on purpose. And so they, they, they choose somehow, whether they know it or not, they choose peace and joy and love and hope and eternal life with Christ or everlasting life completely separated from God with raw, pain, hurt, evil, want, hunger, disease, malignant boils, and evil. He's the one that rescues you from that. He's trying to remind them that no matter what happens to you, no matter how bad it gets, you've already been rescued. You're invincible. You will not die until God says it's time to die. You will not lose a hair on your head until God says, unless God allows that hair to be gone. You cannot, nothing can stop you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Paul teaches and oozes throughout all of his epistles. It's an amazing thing that Paul sees these people that had three and a half weeks of training and then they had persecution. We have mild inconvenience. They had persecution. People were being arrested. People were being flogged. People were being slandered. And he finds out months later that they've remained faithful, that they've stood firm. And he tells them, you were here and you stopped. You turned away from the idols, from who you were. You turned around and you grabbed onto God. You grabbed onto Christ. You accepted what he did for you. And he, and he came into you and he now walks ahead of you. He walks alongside of you and he takes up behind you so that you're protected. And even though there's much suffering, even though you've remained faithful. See, Jesus tells us in this world, there will be trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And Paul, he's so thrilled that these people that should have and could have walked away from the faith. They could have gone three and a half. Oh, sorry, I had a bad three weeks. I'm back. And they didn't. He's talking about this word that we hate. Long-suffering. You know, when we talk about our posture toward God, when we, that we have this little, these little soundbitey things in the church and, you know, kind of our mission statement is look up to see what God is doing. And then we like this one. Lean in for whatever the, Jesus has for us and live out your faith wherever the Holy Spirit leads you. But that lean in is a twofold thing. Of course, if, the, if, the, if Jesus wants to give me something in order to receive it, I need to hang on to my other stuff loosely. I need to put my hands out. Yes, Lord, whatever you have for me, I want. But there's another piece to lean in. Dogged determination. I'm going to lean into whatever he calls me to. I'm going to lean in to whatever he has for me. I'm going to, and, I, and I'm going to be willing, no matter what, 
to stand firm in what I know to be true, even when it doesn't look like I should, because faith is being sure of what I hope for and certain of what I don't see. So when you, if you're given an opportunity where it makes no sense to be faithful and you choose to be faithful, that's long-suffering. But when you choose not to be, that was what Paul was expecting. He was expecting to hear, even though the Holy Spirit had been there in the proclamation of the gospel and they had received it with power, he was expecting to hear that they had failed. He thought that he was going to have to come back in and encourage them and kind of reconvert them, but they didn't have to do it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is more gracious and more powerful and more persuasive than even Paul the apostle. So what does that have to do with us? They were in the middle of a culture that believed everything except what they stood for. We're in the middle of a culture that believes everything except for what we stand for. When I do what's right, other people will say I'm being judgmental. Okay, not that different than there, except I'm not getting flogged, I'm not getting imprisoned yet. Who knows? But if I turn away from who I used to be and I grab onto God, Hebrews tells us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because the one who promised is faithful. You've turned from who you were and from everything else that's the easy way out. And now hang on. But there's suffering involved. Not always, sometimes more than others. Sometimes it just feels like you're alone. But some of us, there was a man here today at worship who, whose son died Friday. There was a husband here whose wife can't come to church right now because she's in perpetual physical pain. There are people here who are worried about their, the, the, the eternal address of their children. There are people in this room right now who've fallen away in their faith and they just hope they can hide it so no one else knows because they don't want a sermon. If you're in a spot where you have pain, where you've been betrayed, where life hit, the last thing in the world you want to hear is a preacher stand up and say, long suffer. I just want to remind you of something we said about six weeks ago. Yes, there are things that God allows that he could prevent. But whatever pain you have, and they have much, God will not waste it. He will not waste your pain. I'm not saying he says, here's some pain so that I won't waste it. He allows what he could prevent for his son's glory. And if you've turned from other stuff to Christ, do not be turned back. Set your foot, set your chin, and set your shoulder, and you hang on for dear life. And you say, I will not turn back. I'll remember how, what, what it was when I was converted. I will remember how God has been faithful. And I will believe that even though it doesn't look like he's going to be now, he will be faithful again. In fact, he'll be faithful in the middle of all this. In this world, there will be trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. Now, I'm going to give you a, a picture. I do, I'm not recommending this movie because it was the single most awkward experience I ever had with my mom. 
When you were 17, those of you who aren't yet, and you're a boy, and you have a divorced single mom, and you come home from a Christian camp, and you're talking about your faith, and you go see a movie, and it's Officer and a Gentleman, and Richard Gere and Deborah Winger are in a situation that you don't want to see with your mom. <laughs> so I'm not recommending this movie. Please don't go rent it. Or don't Netflix it, or don't Amazon Prime it, or however else are the illegal ones. I don't know. And if you do, there's a section in there, you'll know when it's coming, just fast forward about three and a half minutes. But there's this thing in here, Richard Gere, his character, um, may mayonnaise. He was an officer candidate. And Deborah Winger was his love interest. But the, the scene I'm thinking about is Louis Gossett Jr. was the gunnery sergeant, the drill sergeant, who's trying to, he just didn't, he didn't like Richard Gere's character. And he was trying to get him to quit. And there's this moment, they'd had this fight and there's this moment when he's saying, ring the bell, you know, go quit. And then there's this moment when, when, when Louis Gossett Jr., I mean, there's spit coming out of his mouth, and he's got the brim of that hat right on Richard Gere's face, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick you out. And I'm not going to do Richard Gere's face because it wasn't flattering for him, and he's Richard Gere. <laughs> but it went something like this. Just give up. Just quit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick you out. Don't you do it. Why not? I got nowhere else to go. I've got nowhere up. That's long-suffering. That's dogged determination. That's leaning into whatever Christ has for us. That is saying, I got nothing else. Because if I turn back, I'm going to be more miserable than I've ever been before. If I give up on my faith, I have a taste of glory, and I know about grace and mercy, and I know about the substitutionary atonement, but if I reject it, there's nothing for me. So, folks, when it's hard, and it will be, I promise, Jesus promises, you'll be persecuted for righteousness. There'll be trouble in this world. When it gets ugly, don't give up. Stand firm. When someone hates you, love them. When someone beats you, if it's a parent and a child, a husband or a wife, don't take this advice. But if, if someone slaps you upside the head, turn to them and say, do not return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. Because if you don't have faith when it's hard, then do you have faith? And if Jesus, is, Jesus isn't all you have, then do you really have Jesus? You'll never know, and I think this is Mother Teresa, it might have been Corey Ten Boom, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You have turned. You're assured that your eternal address is solid. So when it hurts, as the Thessalonians are hurting. Praise God in it. You don't have to praise God for it. And hang on, because you have nowhere else to go. And the one who loves you more than you love yourself, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, and the one who will protect you even though it feels like he's not. Lives in you, goes before you, surrounds you, and covers your vulnerabilities.
you've turned. Stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, there are two words in our language that seem to say the opposite, but their root is the same. The root is courage. But when we're discouraged, we lose courage. So, Lord, for those of us who are losing our courage, we pray that you encourage us, that you infuse us with the courage that comes from the gospel, that we recognize that nothing can happen to us that you do not allow. And remind us that you will not waste our pain, you will not waste or trivialize our suffering. And somehow, some way, whether we see it or not, you will turn it around for your glory. Remind us of that. Assure us of that. And Lord, those of us who are suffering right now, give them, if, they, if you won't take it away for good, give them a respite. Nurture them, comfort them, and whisper to them that I know it hurts, but you're not alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, for the glory of God our Father alone. Amen. Now and now, but remember in Florida last fall when the when the hurricane was coming and they thought it was going to be first the whole East Coast and then the whole West Coast and then it went kind of kind of well. Um, my dad lives down there, and I have another friend Tom Hiley that lives down there, and I have some cousins that live down there. And I was in contact, lots of texting and all that kind of stuff. My dad weathered the storm at Disney World, <laughs> Disney Vacation Club. They had their own power supply and all that, so it was like you know he was fine. But um, but there's still that that until you know, you're fearful. Paul had a little bit of that with the Thessalonian church. He didn't know how they were doing. When he got the report, not only was he thrilled, but they were thrilled to be able to say so. Because if, if your family's worried about you, you want to tell them you're okay if you're okay. Now, we don't have a, a church, as a church, we're not separated from the apostle, but it does feel like sometimes that God is far away. I just want you to know that every time you're faithful, Every time you choose the hard thing because it's the right thing, every time you, you risk and you share a little bit about your faith with someone that might turn against you, every time you help someone on the side of the road, every time you give a little bit more money, every, every time you do something that God celebrates, Jesus is watching and he turns to his father and he says, see, I told you about that one. That's why I love that one so much. I'm especially fond of her. He's my favorite. I told you they'd be good. I told you they'd be okay. I told you that the Holy... Now, I'm not saying that the Father doubted it, but they have a community amongst themselves and the Spirit lives in you and he's perpetually telling the Father and the Son what's going on so they know right now, not later. I don't have to wait for an angel to get there. So recognize that there's no reason to be discouraged. There's gonna be trouble. But take heart, he's overcome the world. So you've turned... Now stand firm for the hope that you have. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. So God smile at you. God smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.